Good morning, I'm your host, Claudia Shamba, welcoming you to the May 24th, 2021 edition of Digging Out. This is the part two of Principal Consultant at Pop Health, Vinu Ilakavan's interview I had. Please enjoy. So we're talking about different roles of professionals that respond to this pandemic and talking about economists or another group in this public health lane and that economists needed to step up to make the case for we provide income for Mm. people who need to remain in place to suppress transmission of the virus. I mean, that they had a huge role. And I don't know how you as a consultant would evaluate the economists in the public health lane. They needed to take the down ramp onto the freeway, but do they do that? Or do they just stay on the shoulder or in the the parking, the shopping mall off of the freeway altogether? Right. Well, this is where, you know, I feel like obviously all economists are not the same, right? So I feel like for me, the economists that I want in the public health lane are the ones, again, who are being thoughtful and balancing multiple considerations, right? Like we do have to care about people's economic well-being that has immense consequences for folks' survival, for their well-being, and even for their health. And we have to care about their economic health. We also have to care about their physical health and well-being. We also have to care about how different populations are being affected by this and the disproportionate impact COVID and many other public health issues have on communities of color and other marginalized communities. And And on genders that have taken on a huge extra load. Yes, absolutely. Giving them some kind of financial relief because exactly doing the homeschooling and the Zoom call at work and any and maybe they're in the sandwich generation of managing COVID cases in their extended families. Absolutely. Uh, yeah, I think that I mean the gender dynamics are are extremely notable. I think also the dynamics in terms of who those frontline workers are. And, you know, again, the the disproportionate number of people of color and low income folks in these frontline roles and what that means exactly to your point, the decisions that need to be made to provide financial relief. Yeah, to provide financial relief to make those decisions. You know, what what we ended up with was the situation where, you know, bars were open and schools were closed. And you take a step back and think about, like, how did we get into that place? And a lot of it is, again, in the absence of the political will to pay small business owners to close shop for a while, in the absence of the political will to do that, then you are faced with this decision of like, okay, these small businesses are going to be driven out of business, or we allow them to open and, you know, put the community at greater risk of spread. I obviously, from a public health perspective, wish that those decisions were made differently and that we had much more political and policy support for providing those necessary financial supports to enable certain closures to happen, to enable, you know, things like sick leave and paid family leave and all of those things that we need to support folks that were still having to go, you know, physically into the office, even when community spread was very high. So let's have you make the distinction here between public health and medical health professionals, since 
medical professionals are often tapped for interviews about the pandemic. So they're in the lane. Talk about how they were able to do some of this messaging. Yeah, no, I really appreciate that. And this this is the topic that many of us in public health feel really strongly about. And I touched on a piece of this earlier, which is that generally speaking, right, medical professionals and the medical paradigm, they are trained to treat individuals. And that is an incredibly important job. And I am very glad we have people that are trained to do it and do it well. But what happens is when you have medical professionals who are trained to treat individuals being tapped to speak about a pandemic, which is a population level public health issue, And that can be problematic the way someone who's thinking about, you know, if you're thinking about individual risk for a particular patient, especially if they are young, their individual risk might be really low. But that doesn't mean that our public guidance can take that same perspective because we're talking at a population level where we need to think about transmission and prevention and have that more holistic view. And this is not to say, you know, there are many MDs who are trained in public health, who do have a public health lens, and some of them are extremely effective communicators. So, you know, not kind of wholesale saying we shouldn't have medical professionals in this lane, but that the ones that are in this lane should be looking at things from that public health lens if they are speaking to public health issues. And I think also I would like to see public health professionals tapped more by the news media to speak about public health. You know, I think there's a a tendency to gravitate to MDs. And we see this even in job descriptions for running a state health department and they want an MD. And it's like, well, Some MDs might be able to do that job, but training as an MD does not give you the skills to run a state health department, to do the work of multi-sector collaboration, to do the work of managing policies and systems. So I think we really need to, to kind of take a step back and see what roles and what duties and responsibilities require public health expertise Uh, And again, there's some MDs that have that, but there are also a lot of public health people that have that that are not MDs. And I think we we should value that public health expertise where where that expertise is what we need. Well, I'm kind of concerned that maybe a lot of this could be about the optics. Are there such things as public health lab coats? (laughs) Not that I know of, but I I think you're onto something here. (laughs) We need, yes, we need a visual... Because there were there were some really bizarre so-called health medically trained officials that were uh, doing a lot of elaborate. They're still doing some elaborate misinformation mm-hmm. campaigns in Orange County, and they never skip a beat. They're always wearing a lab coat when they're fanning mm-hmm. out with their misinformation. For those of you who've just joined us, you're listening to Digging Out. Vinu Elakovan is founder and principal consultant of Pop Health, and. I'd like to sort of transition into, broadly speaking, roles of different entities here. There's the governmental, the philanthropic, and there's the corporate. So let's maybe have you briefly take up, in this public health lane, we have had some really extraordinary, all over the map, messaging from the National Institute of Allergies and Infectious Diseases, National Institute of Health, and the Center for Disease Control. Do you want to speak briefly to 
I guess we know kind of a hot mess it had been in the previous administration, but are you seeing in the public health lane, like let's say better tuned up models that are driving along? Yeah, so I mean, I, I definitely think in the current administration, as opposed to the previous one, yes, we are certainly seeing more cohesive and helpful both policies and messaging, um, again, certainly compared to what we were looking at before. But I think it also goes to show, again, with that CDC example we were talking about earlier, where Dr. again, Lindsay. yeah, where again, in, in my opinion, they've sort of gone from being too cautious to kind of whiplashing too much in the other direction. I think we start to see that even when you have public health professionals and policymakers who do value public health expertise and who do value the scientific evidence, that that alone is still not enough for effective communication and messaging and policy, right? That these are complex, any population health issue is complex, right? There are lots of different factors. There are lots of different, we don't, again, this idea that we don't operate in a vacuum or we don't operate in a world of perfect information. And that means there's a lot of nuance to these things. And so all the well-intentioned people in the world are sometimes still not enough. You still need a very thoughtful balancing act uh, to take not just the scientific evidence, but also the social context, also consider those like other intended and unintended consequences and the way people might respond to certain things and anticipate that all of that plays in. So to kind of go back to your question about the role of these agencies and the administration, you know, I mean, I think obviously people are looking to these federal agencies and the administration for guidance and for information, of course, in a politically polarized space that we are in now, I think there's also a lot of people who have already made up their mind in one direction or the other and are therefore, you know, responding to guidance from sort of their pre-existing positions. And that can be very challenging as well to navigate. So there's an abundance of complexity here that, that everyone's trying to navigate. Well, speaking of the navigating, I can see our public health lane analogies still holding that these federal agencies are trying to roll into the public messaging mm -hmm. the, in the lane. There is increasingly better visibility ahead. We're getting more data about how people in the clinical trials are responding to the intervention and moving about in the world. So the federal agencies' messages have to keep incorporating this greater clarity they're getting as the clinical trials continue. Right, and that has been a huge challenge throughout this pandemic is sort of crafting policy and messaging that responds to constantly evolving science and knowledge and information. And that is, challenging in the best of times. And, and that's certainly we're in much more challenging times. So a line that is even harder to walk right now, I think. And I think a lot of people are doing their best, but I wish there were more people who could bridge these aspects of kind of thoughtfully looking at the science and the evidence, but also thoughtfully considering the broader social and political context 
and being able to make decisions that take both of those things into account, because that's the only way we're going to arrive at messages and policies that are actually effective. Um, so you know, if, if the call comes from CDC uh, during this interview, please take that call. So <laughs> you can consult with them about how to, to pull that off. Well, I want to make sure we can dot some I's, cross T's with that local government piece. There's the state, mm-hmm. but what is concerning those that are immediate to this community radio program is that our local government lacked a curiosity about, I would say they acted like an old Chrysler car in the, mm-hmm. in the public health lane. It was, it was, the transmission fluid was low, the brakes, mm-hmm. the, I don't know about the brake fluid, but it was, there was a message in optics. They were using it for other projects. One of them was using it to, to run for U.S. Congress, lead mm-hmm. the board of supervisors, but there was some strange kind of cruising going on with missing a way to bring the culture on board with responding to that. So local governments, are you getting projects to help local governments assume that vital role to directly engage their public to manage this pandemic together? So, I I mean, I think the role of local government and also local community organizations in this really cannot be overstated. That on the ground presence and direct outreach is so vital. Uh, You know, I recently wrote about this in the context of a more equitable vaccine distribution in the US COVID vaccine distribution and thinking about the importance of taking the vaccines directly into communities and especially to marginalized communities And that is local government, that is local boots on the ground community organizations. uh, And they are so, so vital to be able to respond, not only to this pandemic, but to improving public health writ large. That's what a lot of my work is focused on is those, you know, community health improvement efforts. So much of this, again, it's about the spaces where we live and work and play, and that's all community-based. And so their role is really vital. And I think that to your point, obviously, depending on the political leanings of different communities, we have seen local governments kind of respond in both extremes, right? And I think part of the challenge of this extremely politically polarized space that we are in is that I think people on on both sides fall into this trap again of sort of going in with the decision made and then kind of working backwards to justify it. That was exactly capturing what we were experiencing. Yeah. That's well said. Yeah. And I think that I would really love to see us move towards a world in which uh, we all kind of approach things with humility, approach things with, you know, a willingness to listen to those who disagree with us, a willingness to be proven wrong in some cases. I just feel like we all need to be more thoughtful and less sort of ideologically rooted and then sort of, again, kind of retroactively justifying decisions based on the position that we already hold. But how do we get that done? Because local government is the farm team of higher political elected office. Like you said, there is a target, there's a goal, and they're going to work toward that goal. Public health isn't exactly 
you know, on that path, mm -hmm. but local government is hyper-political. So I, I, how do you as a consultant try to make that public health portfolio a win-win for mm -hmm. the ideological office holder? How this that, is so important in the public health work we're doing. I think there absolutely is a way to frame what we are doing in public health to align with a range of different values that different individuals and communities might hold. How is I that? think Yes. You know, I think we talk a lot in public health about this idea of sort of formative research of understanding your audience, understanding what their values are. I mean, there's actually some pretty good examples of this, even in relation to the pandemic and around vaccines. You know, there's been some polling done with folks who are who identify as politically conservative and are vaccine hesitant. And even in those groups, there are very few people who say there is literally nothing that will move me to get the vaccine, right? What we need to understand is, you know, what are their values? What do they trust? What information do they need? And as we dive into those things, I think you find that if you have an individual who really values spending time with their family, well, then let's talk about how vaccination can help you do more of that, right? Or if you have someone who really, and you know, like even talking about people, like the, how people value liberty and freedom, you know, in a lot of ways, public health actually does allow more freedom, right? In terms of being able to kind of safely engage in the world, it actually can expand freedom, but we don't often talk about it that way. So I think that there is a lot we can do in how we frame what public health does to appeal to and align with those that may hold seemingly different or opposed values. And I don't think we always do a good job of that. I also think we often fall into the trap of alienating people that at least initially disagree with us instead of trying to kind of like build a bigger tent, so to speak. And I think that shaming people and criticizing them, that's not productive or helpful, nor does that move people. So I think we really need to think about how we actually persuade people. I think we've gotten into this trap uh, largely both on and off social media, right, of kind of speaking to our echo chambers that already agree with us. Yes, to and that especially point, I want to use an analogy to that point that yeah. makes it so difficult for our local government to deal with that. And the analogy I'm going to use is with the deluge of there were maybe up to 500 people that turned out in our this week's at this time of taping, May 14th, board of supervisors meeting. So 500 people turned out, I'm using the analogy in our public health lane. It was mm -hmm. like a hydroplaning. There was no <laughs> way to get traction, right, right? In the message that you all will get everything you want if you just understand, overcome the misinformation campaign that you're all saturating, mm -hmm. mar they're marinating in that. And the analogy is that you're saying a trusted source that local government isn't containing that the hordes, that hydroplaning effect, but maybe in the lane, the public health lane, inside the car cruising along is the physician in the passenger seat assuring mm -hmm. the driver that the vaccine is okay. Right. And that's, and that is what all sorts of research and polling that's coming in is suggesting that it is right. It's 
their personal physician, it's their neighbor, it's their friend, it's those personal contacts and relationships. Like those are the things that are going to kind of move people to give them confidence to help them understand the safety of these things uh, and so on. So I think there's a lot more we could be doing, right, to kind of elevate and leverage those personal connections to address this issue. Um, And while we're talking about hesitancy, I also want to take a step back and talk about there's also a real, real issue around access. And I think the hesitancy, the vaccine hesitancy conversation has kind of unfairly taken center stage where we are still dealing even globally, it's a whole other issue of inequitable access, right? Right. But even within the US, there is, you know, significant inequities in access and availability and information. We're, you know, finding that a lot of people who haven't gotten vaccinated yet, it's not necessarily a hesitancy issue, or it's either sometimes it's like an information and access issue, they don't know where to get it or how close it is, or they have very legitimate concerns that have not been addressed by whoever, the public health folks or the folks in the community or the policymakers. And so we have these very real access equity issues that, again, I think, you know, that the local government, the local community organizations are vital to addressing those things. And it has been really heart wrenching to see over the course of the pandemic in the U.S., how many state and local public health officials have come under attack, have been forced out or retired or like personally attacked by the public and all of these things. That was here last Memorial Day weekend. Yeah. And that so it's so sad and it's so hard. And especially again, like I feel like public health is this field that has been kind of unfairly under the radar and underfunded and under recognized and all of these things. And then all of a sudden it's in the spotlight and people who are trying to do their best in a very tough situation have often unfairly attacked and kind of pushed to their limits. Yeah. Yes, Yes. Well, in our last queries here in the public health lane are the philanthropists that are loaded with cash. Mm-hmm. They're philanthropists. They're maybe they're in tech. They're, of course, I'm thinking of Bill Gates, but mm-hmm. there are so many others. And but he is our poster philanthropist to scrutinize here because of some enormous blind spots in this public health lane. He doesn't see how much traffic is in front of him, beside him, and behind him. So if we could continue this analogy, talk about what problems he brings into addressing this pandemic spreading and persisting. Yeah, absolutely. So I have lots of thoughts on this. So I think that there are a few issues with wealthy individuals and philanthropists entering the public health lane, right? So one is that We have this issue and we see this not only with the pandemic, but with public health issues broadly, the problem of funding and resources being allocated essentially based on the whims of a single individual or entity, right? As opposed to being rooted in an understanding of community needs and community assets and what those on the ground realities are. And 
Well, you know, we saw this with responding to HIV AIDS as well. You know, all of a sudden there was this influx of philanthropic dollars to address that issue. And in a lot of countries globally where this money was flowing into, they needed clean water. They needed all sorts of other public health infrastructure. You know, they didn't just need a fancy new clinic to go up for HIV treatment or whatever it was. And so, you know, I worry about the resource allocation being kind of at the whims of of individuals, even well-intentioned ones, as opposed to something that is more community rooted and systematic. And, you know, this is where government, if and when it's functioning well, has a real role, right? Because by definition, they are operating from a place of thinking about the population as a whole. And that is often what we need with respect to effectively allocating public health resources. The other piece of this with the Bill Gates uh, of the world and also the kind of private corporations of the world. And, uh, you know, we see a lot of like corporate social responsibility and all of that as well. So it's both wealthy individuals and wealthy corporations. And there are just an array of issues around conflicts of interest, whether kind of whether they're operating at a conscious or a subconscious level, there is there are some serious conflicts of interest. Uh, there is what uh, you mentioned, uh, you know, Anand Girdardas at the beginning of this, what he calls reputational laundering, right? That there are so many both individuals and corporations where their core business is in various ways harming public health, but then they turn around and kind of donate pennies on the dollar to a public health cause. And now, again, they're, you know, they're laundering their reputation that seems or like their they reputation are. laundering on uh, how little tax they're paying. Uh, yes. So there's all of that reputation. That is, uh, yes, I was going to bring up the, the tax issue. Absolutely. You know, this issue of tax avoidance. And I was just doing some research around regulations around corporate social responsibility. And it's so interesting because there are countries, including India, that have legislation that mandates corporate philanthropy. And I just like can't wrap my mind around the logic of that, because as a government, you could just actually tax those corporations, right? Like, I feel like we're in this convoluted world where like corporations and corporate interests really are like establishing our norms and our policies. And, you know, I really want to see us step back and rethink some of these things because, yeah, it's like the functions that we are talking about philanthropy serving in terms of education and health and all of these things are things that are all like public government functions. And so if we can tax and use tax money to actually, again, allocate these things in ways that are not happening at the whim of one individual or based on kind of for-profit motivations, then that certainly seems like it would be a more effective allocation. And, you know, this is not to argue that government is perfect. Obviously, it is not. Obviously, there are huge issues. But I think that ultimately government is accountable to all of us in the country. And that is just not true of Bill Gates or Mark Zuckerberg or corporations, right? So, and the White House leadership in this current administration is offering a different leadership than the previous administration by pushing back on Bill Gates' sort of soapbox that he needs to protect patents. He's aiding and abetting protection of patents on publicly financed pharmaceuticals. 
So the, the Biden administration wants to push back on that. So in the name of public health, in this public health lane, there's the federal government in the lane. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And I think we've often seen not just the federal government, but policymakers at all levels, you know, this goes to kind of the political determinants of health and how policymakers and their campaigns are financed. And these folks we talked earlier about, you know, their hands can be tied based on who is funding them and supporting them. That is certainly true of policymakers and who's donating to their campaigns and supporting them. And I feel like we have just this outsized role for certain industries and corporations because of their financial wealth and power uh, and wealthy individuals as well along those lines. And we've seen so many examples of corporations and individuals sort of donating to or publicly supporting these causes, whether that's Black Lives Matter or addressing the pandemic, et cetera. And then on the other side, they're fighting tooth and nail against policies and against taxation that would actually strengthen our response to these things. The pricing of what there are lobbyists that are in the public health lane that are trying to set the terms for Mm -hmm. what the pricing will be for the pharmaceuticals and dealing with the COVID. Right. I don't know so much about the the kind of nuances of the specific kind of pharmaceutical regulations or pricing, but what I will say is that there are a lot of spaces within public health where the pricing and the value we place on things is being driven by the need to generate profit. And that is where, again, I think government has a real role in being able to ideally, again, notwithstanding the issues we just talked about in terms of how policymakers raise money, et cetera, but in theory, at least government can allocate resources based on prioritizing the health and other elements of kind of population well-being without having to prioritize or especially maximize profits. I think that the issue of needing to maximize profits is where we find ourselves with key public health resources that are then too expensive to be accessible, right? Whether that's vaccines or whether that's just, you know, healthcare services or or what have you. But it's a federal government's role to frame this whole pricing story around it is a publicly funded research that got mm-hmm. us to all of these vaccines for COVID. Absolutely. And I think that that is something that gets ignored so often, whether it is, you know, federal funding for research that is behind these things, whether it is federal support for wealthy individuals and families in terms of tax credits and the way the tax system is set up, whatever it is, I think there's a lot of government support to wealthy corporations and individuals that does not get seen as such, whereas government support for lower income marginalized communities is immediately characterized as welfare and as handouts and so on. So we have this kind of, I think, really unfair framing of government support depending on who it's going to. 
So is that in your line of work, Vinu, to hold that up there? Or does it take a client to be able to give you an opportunity to frame that for broader public consumption? Um, that is something that I'm still, I'm still figuring out. Uh, you know, I think I, I, you have the public health lane. You are right there. Yes, <laughs> definitely in the public health lane, still kind of every day working on figuring out, uh, you know, kind of what my role is within that lane, both in terms of my consulting practice and also just me as a whole person figuring that out. But I think it's really important and I think it has really been underexplored both in the public health field and more broadly, this really thinking about these, uh, what we call commercial determinants of health and also political determinants of health, because they are really driving so much of what ends up impacting our overall health and well-being. They're just such powerful forces that I think we've left largely unquestioned in the past. So that is definitely a role that I would like to play is to bring light to that and think about how we begin to address those things in ways that promote public health and distribute power more equitably across all of these different actors in this lane that we've been talking about. So I don't know what the zero sum game looks like on a highway, but uh, I guess it's just that the traffic moves smoothly, folks. We're not keeping anybody from using that, those lanes, all the lanes on the freeway, but it's we're moving along and it's not a zero sum. Public health is a win, win, win. I certainly think so. Well, Vinu, this has been so helpful. Thank you so much for all your time today. You're welcome. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Maybe you'll uh, return to take on public health roles in mastering our massive concerns around climate, possibly another time. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I actually, I, you know, some of what we've been talking about relates so much in terms of thinking about the role of corporations and politics and, and thinking about systems change. You know, I've been really thinking a lot lately, especially with climate, about how uh, you know, I think corporations and certain political actors have been so successful at framing it as an individual issue and individual responsibility. And, you know, are we are we having plastic straws or not? And by doing so, they are taking the attention off the primary drivers of climate change, which are really operating at the level of big corporations and big industries and their influence on climate, their influence on kind of lobbying against policy change and so on and so forth. But as you said, that is a topic for a we later can do time. That. We can do that later. My listeners know we've talked about producer responsibility, producer accountability with some other guests of mine on previous shows. So my guest was Vinu Elakovin, founder and principal consultant of Pop Health, steering us through this very heavy traffic in the public health lane on the highway of public health policy here on Digging Out. Thank you again. Thank you. taking the next off-ramp now. On next week's show, John Hosevar of Greenpeace and Andrea Leon Grossman of Azul will take up California's contribution to the worldwide heaps of plastic. Talk with you next week. Thank you for listening, everyone.